Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Italian stallion, Dom Rizzuto. G'day, g'day folks, and welcome to another edition of Splinters here on Triple H 100.1 FM. My name is Dom Rizzuto, the spicy chorizo, Italian stallion, the little ball as I'm more affectionately known. Quite a few nicknames, but not going to uh, going to deter us from moving forward. It's a pleasure to be with you here on a locked down Australia once again to talk all things sport with you. Try and bring a few smiles to your faces in what has been the face of failure on the part of some individuals. Plenty to talk about tonight. What we're bringing to you is one of our favourite editions for the year. It is, of course, the fails of 2020, a segment we've done for the last uh, year or so now and one that uh, we get to use our real talents for, which is ranting and complaining and getting stuck into to athletes for and sporting codes and teams and organisations for doing the wrong thing. Of course, I can't do it all by myself. I'm joined by the world's number one rancer, and that means a lot coming from me. Um, here's, of course, the fire from South Australia, uh, Mr. Keith Dupolsky. Keith, mate, it's a pleasure to have you here, uh, a professional complainer like myself, to go through what has been a, a pretty uh, big year of disappointments. Yeah, and uh, good evening to everyone listening across the Triple H Global Network. And uh, yeah, as we're recording this, I'm waking up after the night before or the day before where it was all stops to try and get out of Sydney before all the borders went up in South Australia. So uh, lots of fun as far as fails go and lots to talk about there. But I don't think we're going to get too much into that. We'll we'll try and concentrate on the sporting side of things instead to try and give a little bit of levity given that, well, there's pretty much none of that going on at the moment. Well, yeah, exactly right. Uh, as the world uh, here you know, continues to sort of crumble around us, uh, we're going to talk mostly about the, the, the sport that has crumbled around us, regardless of what's been happening outside of the ring in 2020. Uh, we're going to get started off, and we're going to be going through it in we've got about, uh, about uh, eight different... Uh, individuals and teams and organizations to to go through with you today uh people we're going to start off with individuals and keith if we're going to start off with uh you know individuals my, me personally i have to start off with novak Djokovic. yeah that's probably not a bad place to start i don't, I mean, I don't think we'll do this in any particular order but yeah i think novak um probably went for the throat in more ways than one this year in trying to be a failure he did. So, look, I mean, he had a, 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 had a collection of sort of failures, which uh, summed up in one kind of big calamity earlier in the year. Uh, you know, we, we start off and we, you know, at the you know, beginning of the year. Now, now Kovac, Novak is Kovac. Novak is a very, very good athlete, as we know. He's, you know, he's one of the world's best tennis players. He's got his eyes on uh, taking that record of most Grand Slam singles titles uh, in the men's division. Uh, with a few years, uh, you know, down the line. Um, but he definitely didn't go the best way about it this year. Uh, it, look, it started off when everything went into into lockdown and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the tennis uh, biggest tournaments uh, s- suspended themselves, said that they weren't going ahead 
Uh, Wimbledon, you know, cancelled itself. The US Open got suspended. The French Open suspended itself. And a lot of players, uh, you know, including the likes of Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, uh, our athletes here like Nick Kyrgios, didn't want or didn't go travelling around the world playing tennis. They put their their professional uh, expedition on hold for 2020 and waited for the results uh, to, to simmer down. Uh, in terms of the growing cases of, of COVID-19 across the globe. However, Novak Djokovic didn't do that, uh, along with quite a few other uh, sort of, let's say, uh, Eastern or Middle European players, decided that what they should do instead is actually throw a tournament run by Novak Djokovic in his home country of Serbia. And uh, by all means, it was a great tournament, um, there was no cases in Croatia at the time and, and, and Serbia in, the, in that area of Europe. However, what ended up happening was, funnily enough, is that a lot of players and a lot of people actually ended up contracting COVID uh, as, the, as the virus or the, or the a pandemic, the epidemic, swept through European nations. This then forced everyone pretty much, uh, including uh, a lot of the, the best players, even into further lockdown. Now, that's I'm talking guys like Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, as I mentioned before. Leaving the U.S. Open, which was still scheduled to go ahead, because mind you, at this time, you have to remember, the U.S., whilst had a lot of cases, wasn't as bad as it is right now. So Novak Djokovic contracting coronavirus, spreading it to a lot of other people, then actually went ahead to the U.S. Open. He, you know, he got treated and he was tested negative and he went over to the U.S. Open, but... At this stage, you know, the U.S. Open had, you know, U.S. had had a lot of cases themselves and they, and only a few players went across. And, you know, so Novak really had a run at the U.S. Open by himself. Now, you would think perhaps a, a cunning move. Maybe it wasn't a failure to throw a tournament and catch coronavirus and, and force your, your, your biggest competition out of the tournament and you have a single line at the title. However, Novak, uh, <laughs> let's just say, didn't, um, let's say, have a, a tournament that went entirely to plan. Um, he uh, was in a matchup against uh, Karina Buster, and he was down a set. And just as he lost the first set, he, without looking and unknowingly, hit a ball behind him, which then smacked... <laughs> The, the line judge in the face, or in the throat, I think it was at the time, mm-hmm. which then dropped her to the ground. And as rule states, if your conduct results in an injury to a line judge or an official, you are automatically disqualified and you are out of the tournament. And that is what happened to Novak Djokovic. And he didn't win the US Open a huge failure on his part because there was no one who could have beaten him. And then to cap it all off, he got to the final of the French Open later in the year and he got absolutely destroyed by Rafael Nadal in three sets and didn't hasn't played much tennis since then. 
No, it's uh, been quite the year for Novak, and I think this will be one that he'll want to put absolutely in the back pocket, uh, just like someone a little bit closer to home, not in the tennis scene, but certainly in the media scene, something that we're far more au fait with as far as how things work. And as far as going for the throat, yes, okay, Novak accidentally uh, took the line judge in the throat, but Hugh Marks, the outgoing Channel 9 CEO, is my first pick, my number four, if you like, or we'll go with number seven or however we want to order it. He decided to basically declare that the NRL should shut down for the year. That didn't exactly work out too well for him because all the shareholders at nine decided all of a sudden, no, hang on a minute. We want the NRL to go ahead. And well, I'm I'm sure Peter Volandis will get a run next week on our successes for 2020. But the way Hugh Marks basically said, we're not paying up and then we want a discount and then we're not going to make a bid, and then we might let Rugby League go. Well, Channel 9's got nothing else at the moment, so I don't know what they're going to try and sign up as far as a major sport goes, but Hugh Marks really misread the media world during the pandemic, particularly the Rugby League world, and now he finds himself without a job, which I suppose is probably not quite as... Well, well, it's a little bit worse than what Novak ended up with because at least he'll be able to come back and play again, but Hugh Marks finds himself on the unemployment queue because he decided to go out there and basically tell Peter Volandis how to run his competition, and a few other people have done that in the past. Didn't work out too well for them, Dom. No, it didn't. An interesting one from from Hugh Marks, uh, you know, was very against the, the, the NRL getting up and running. Uh, you know, earlier in the year as well, we had the, the contract dispute with some of these more high-profile journalists on the show. Lisa Wilkinson is one uh, t- to name a few. Um, there was a lot of changes, obviously, going on at the, the network itself. But when you've got your, when you've got your flagship platform, which is cl- clearly the NRL, and let's face it. Nine's coverage has, has gotten worse and worse year on year, and, and it hasn't gotten any better this year in particular. Uh, to to start bartering with the only thing that's going to be running during the t- year of 2020 was, well, I mean, yeah, I always like to use the phrase, don't mistake bravery with stupidity. Yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, Hugh Marks, I think, was more stupid than brave, but stupidity probably wasn't as much on display for Hugh Marks as it was for your next pick, I have to say. No, exactly right. Stupidity uh, is, uh, well, this is, I mean, the epitome of stupidity, Keith. I mean, I don't think that there could have been a more stupid action in world sport than this, which of course is Sun Yang being banned for eight years for breaking anti-doping rules. Now, this had been a case for a, a long time. You know, Keith, you, you would have heard it. There was big, big arguments about Sun Yang and the way that he had allegedly gone in and broken vials of his testing uh, before, you know, after his Olympic win and his world championship win. You know, we'd seen guys like Mac Horton and, and fellow swimmers not get up on the podium with him because they don't think he did it fairly. The man finally got done in 2020, this year, February 2020, uh, up over a two-year period, the Court of Arbitration of Sports finally ruled that he broke the anti-doping rules. And, I mean, the stupid part is is that he's actually going to appeal this more than anything else. I mean, 
it takes a long time to get these things, but the man himself, you know, has finally been caught. And I think really this this could arguably be a fail of the decade kind of argument, right? But I think <laughs> because it's gotten to this stage now, it's it's, it's a fail for 2020. Yeah, I think you're on to something there as far as a fail for 2020. And something that, or someone, I should say, who failed not quite as spectacularly by screwing up, but was probably one of the biggest surprising fails of the year, I thought was Gil McLaughlin, the AFL CEO, and the way that the AFL was sort of left on the starting block, um, using the swimming analogy, by the NRL, because we've grown used over the years to the AFL just having it all over the NRL as far as management and picking the flow and how things work. But the AFL, very, very reluctant to get their season underway. And it seemed that at the end of the day, they were almost scared into starting their season once Peter Volandis and the NRL had theirs going. And it was, it was, I have to say, a very pleasant change to see the NRL showing the AFL up. And I think that was the first time that Gil McLaughlin had really been outplayed. And I think it really showed in the way uh, he was leading the AFL and the way he was sort of just not really leading it was more just hoping and picking ideas and possibilities and not really showing much leadership at all being more reactive than proactive well absolutely it was definitely as you mentioned reactive that you know there, there, there was a point in time where the nrl was actually going to have a free run for a long period of time uh, and all the other codes had gone into isolation the football season uh, obviously the a-league took a while to to reboot and then the final finished and the afl wasn't going to go ahead and you know, and then they had the outbreak down in Melbourne, which made it a little bit more difficult. But they really showed no kind of ambition to get themselves back on the field. And as you mentioned, it was nice seeing the, the NRL get a, get ahead of the AFL for once in, in terms of, let's say, uh, an organisational sense um, from the uh, from the backroom staff. But, I mean, in terms of how they, they, they turned it around the AFL, uh, and Gil McLaughlin will probably think that it's a, a relatively, you know, decent turnaround. A man who's got a lot to turn around. In, I'm going back to some more, some more, uh, let's say, doping scandals. Uh, is a very young man, and his name is Bronson Cherry. Oh uh, uh, yes. Now, poor old Bronson. Now, I have rated Bronson ever since he broke onto the scene. I think it was almost two years ago. Now it's 2018. He broke on, or 2019. He broke on. Um, he had pretty much the world at his feet. I mean, in my, no doubt in my, my own mind, if he had kept himself on the field in 2020, he would have had an origin jumper. His raw speed, his, his, his pure talent. Um, as we all know, he got done at the start of the season once again, uh, another Cronulla Sharks player for a doping ban, and a very serious doping ban for Bronson Cherry. Mm. I, I mean, a young man, I know, but... Come on. You, I mean, when they get uh, – you could tell by the way that he, he, he didn't appeal it. You know, you had the likes of Shana Jack and Sun Yang who got caught in the swimming sense. You know, they fought for their name. He knew. He knew that he had been done. And what I think for me epitomised this real failure for the year for him is that he came out only a week before and said – I've never felt faster. Uh, yeah, prophetic final <laughs> words, unfortunately, and and now just, it seems that we know why he never felt faster. Yeah, I mean, I got a B sample of testing positive. 
uh, back in, I think it was February at the time now. I just, he's got a tribunal coming up, but I, I suppose the benefit of age is on his side. Uh, you know, if you're going to get done for bands, you can, you know, you get done, uh, you know, when you're 20, not when you're 28, because uh, at least then you've got the chance to come back. Uh, but he's staring down the, bar- the barrel of a four-year ban, um, you know, out of, spending four years out of the game and away from a rugby league field is, I think, going to be detrimental to anyone's professional career. Uh, whether the Sharks continue to keep him on the roster and to keep training him and stick buying him, because who knows, you know, as we mentioned, there's been a few rumours circling around that, you know, this is this is a part of the Cronulla culture now, you know, playing and trying to win premierships in an illegal fashion. I mean, what, what's your take on it, Keith, with, with Bronson? Uh, you know, a, a victimless crime or the the boy crying wolf? Uh, well, he's not, as you say, he's not arguing against it, which is not a good sign as far as his innocence is concerned. My concern is if he's going to do the four years, then I don't think there is a pathway back to the NRL because four years out is way too long. We saw what happened with Will Hopawati. He did two years on his Mormon mission and he hasn't been the same player since. And young Tonomapea as well. There's been a couple of other first graders who have gone for two years and they've still been able to keep in touch and um, do all the training that's necessary. Bronson Terry, four years out, if he's going to come back and make a living as an athlete, I'm thinking Union or Super League because I don't see him coming back to the NRL. I think that's going to be a bridge too far. If he can get two years out, then, yeah, I can see him coming back. Plenty of players have done that before. But I see him basically as a spent force now. And unfortunately... um, he took the gamble and that was the problem because that, that Cronulla Junior rep system of five or six years ago, it was untouchable. It was unbeatable. So many gun players coming through that system and some of them have kicked on and some of them haven't, but he was a real standout. And the fact that he didn't kick on because he decided to indulge in some illicit substances uh, was really disappointing and unfortunately I don't think we'll see him again but someone we are going to see again is someone who probably wanted to indulge in some illicit substances this year I don't think as a failure uh, whether it was brought on by himself and his own actions or brought on by those undermining him I don't think as a failure this year you can go past Anthony Seabold okay (coughs) This is a tough one for me. Uh, maybe maybe because of a, 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 a professional relationship I had with Anthony Seabold only a, a couple of years ago, and when he was at Souths. Um, but by all means, the uh, where you, if you look at it from a from a results point of view, yes, pure failure. But I mean, I mean, he and he did make some bad choices. But God, he was given a he wasn't given a good meal to start with. No, it was it was a problem from the get-go, and Wayne Bennett always seems to leave places in a bad way because he sort of he sort of throws everything into winning the title, and we've seen it before, and it's common occurrence in the NHL. You've got your title window, you throw everything into it, and then when that window closes, you've got to start again and tear it all down and really go back to the bottom. But having said that, some of the young talent that Brisbane had on that roster, I tipped them as missing the eight at the start of the year, but I certainly didn't tip them for the spoon. They had too much talent there. But as I say, whether it was Anthony Seabold doing things himself that were bad or whether it was people who were actively undermining him and whether that was unfair or not, there was 
clearly, after that second game, I mean, that, that was just it. When, when they got smashed by Parramatta in that first game back after the break, then, yeah, okay, well, you get smashed first game back and there's been a plethora of rule changes. So you can say, okay, we, we just need a, a little while to adjust. Then you go out and have the Roosters put 59 points on you at home. That's unforgivable. And straight away, that was just that was it as far as I was concerned. Um, Seabold was a spent force then. The Broncos were a spent force then. And I, I think that the only reason he wasn't dismissed earlier was because Canterbury couldn't buy a win until the back end of the season. They were, you know, not very good, let's face it, this entire year, that Brisbane team. Uh, Seabold, I think a little bit of the blame falls at him, as you mentioned. The talent in that team... You know, they lost David Fafita as well, um, and that's due to the way the team was performing. Um, he mucked up the Darius Boyd situation big time. I think he needed to choose a hard line or an easy line. In the end, he just tried to play catch-up with it in the end. Um, I think once you dropped him out of the fullback position, I think you had to drop him out of the side altogether, um, and, and they didn't. Um, they, you know, the, they didn't put Milford back to fullback until it was too late. Um, who was struggling in the halves all year, and he just couldn't get that forward pack firing at all, and it, and it needed to. There was just no steel. There was no spine in that team. They couldn't defend on their line. They were pure rubbish. But speaking of Canterbury, there is a, another NRL coach that, uh, that I want to mention who uh, failed uh, a lot this year, and that falls with Dean Pate. Now, yeah. mm. he didn't have a great year. He never had a good start, but this I said it at the start of this year that this Bulldogs team on paper, if you look away from its spine, and even its spine, even at least a quarter of its spine is okay, it's a pretty decent team. It's a it's a competitive team. Yes, it's not a title winning, it's not a top four winning team, it's probably not a top eight winning team, but it is a competitive team, and you saw that in matches after Dean eventually left. Yeah, I had no doubt that Canterbury were going to be in the bottom four. Uh, I wasn't as optimistic as you were about some of the players that they had on the roster. But certainly what I was optimistic about was the culture and the toughness that Dean Pay brought to that team, teaching them how to compete, teaching them how to be in the fight and making sure that they went for the full 80 minutes. And there was only one or two games where you looked at it during the season and you thought, yeah, okay, Canterbury's just put the queue in the rack and they're just thinking about next week. Even when they were getting beaten by 30 or 40 points, you could see that they were still putting in and really having a red-hot crack, which was completely different to what the Broncos did. They turned it up almost every week. But Canterbury were there really having a crack every week and Dean Pay was absolutely a victim of circumstance rather than his own choices in this situation. He's almost the antithesis, depending on your view of Anthony Seabold, because Dean Pay did the best that he could do with the hand he was dealt. And I thought the way Canterbury treated him, the club, the way they treated him, was just an absolute disgrace. And I think that if any club out there is looking to install a backbone in their in their club, within their system, then Dean Pay is who you should be going after because he instilled a sense of pride and a sense of desire and I think if he had the cattle, then he would have made the eight. And I think if he has the team that Trent Barrett's going to have next year, then Canterbury with Dean Pay coach, I think would have been walk up, walk up Mazares to make the eight next year. Yeah, look, it wasn't a great year for the Bulldogs. 
um, and it wasn't a good year for, for Dean Pay and, and the way that they organised it. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about um, that as we'll go a little bit further uh, into uh, the NRL for 2021. Um, I believe, though, we've still got one more person to talk about who didn't really do all that well this year, Kev. Yeah, and it's come about more in the last few days. And I want to talk about Eni Maguire, the now soon-to-be outgoing president of the Collingwood Football Club. And he was one of the chief cheerleaders against Peter Volandis and the NRL earlier in the year, saying that the NRL was risking player safety and fan safety and um, not being able to guarantee that everybody would stay safe when rugby league returned. And yet, as soon as the NRL returned, he was on the bandwagon to get the AFL back as fast as possible, just to make sure that the AFL could keep up with the Joneses, really. They had no protocols of their own to talk about, and all they really did was simply hang around and try and keep up with the NRL. There was no original thought or anything like that. And what really struck me at the end of the year was when he decided only a matter of days ago to stand down as Collingwood president. Okay, well, he's had a tough year, as all of us have, And then you look back at what he's achieved with Collingwood. Okay, he's brought them a bit of financial stability. But when you look at what he's achieved with Collingwood over the last decade, there's pretty much nothing there to speak of. It's it's almost barren what he's ended up achieving at Collingwood. And I think Eddie Maguire, for what he's been able to do with his own media career and his own publicity, he should have been able to do a lot better for the Collingwood Football Club. And yeah, okay, he's dedicated to the club and he bleeds black and white and all the rest of it. No one can doubt his passion for the Magpie cause in the AFL. But as far as actual achievement, actual runs on the board go, I don't know whether you can really say anything great about the uh, Eddie Maguire era of Collingwood. Um, it, it's more a sort of a reasonable performance rather than anything else, and I think even reasonable is being generous. Yeah, but the man is, is full of contradictions, isn't he, really, when it comes to when it comes to sport. I was, um, I've was i never been his, his biggest fan, I, I must say. Um, the way that Collingwood have performed in recent times have just not been good. I mean, they scrapped into the finals this year, um, off the back of a, 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 a let's just say, uh, I don't think they even lost their final game of the regular season. So they, because the, the teams below them were just all so terrible, um, it was a real kind of divide uh, between the the eight uh, that were playing finals footy this year for, for in the AFL compared to the teams that weren't. Um, a little bit like the NRL, I suppose, this year and the years that have gone by. It, it just you always find him. You know, just, I don't know, he's just, sometimes it can be, you know, and you mentioned that, you know, his, his with his sway and with his, his political, let's say, position in the AFL world and media uh, background that he has, that he, you know, he, he should do better. But sometimes that can be a bit of a burden. And I think he became too much of the star of the show at Collingwood over the last 10 years when Really, that's not your job as a CEO. But potentially now, with his, without his aura around the club, they won't uh, be struggling as much moving forward. Well, in any case, it is time to move on from our individual fails for 2020. We're going to get stuck right into the collectives. 
when we come back to you shortly talking about the organisations of the teams that failed to live up to expectation in 2020. This is Splinter's Fails of the Year for 2020. We'll be right back with you shortly. G'day, folks. Good evening. Welcome back to Splinter's Triple H 100.1 FM. My name is Dom. Joined with Keith Topolsky to talk all about the failures for the year. There's been a few failures off the field in the last couple of it of days and it's spurred us on to talk about uh, some of the funnier failures of 2020 from the sporting world. You just heard us go through some of the uh, individuals that uh, we thought uh, were a little bit sheepish, if that's the right word to use uh, in 2020, made some, made some horrible mistakes, which has come back to bite them uh, quite extravagantly. But now we're going to talk about the collectives who didn't meet expectation for the year, I'm talking about teams, organisations, and, and various other different groups that uh, let's say let themselves down and let others down in 2020. I mean, Keith, I, I want you to start off. I mean, who's the first collective that comes to mind who fell into a into a six foot uh, hole in 2020? Well, I, I suppose you could go a few different directions here but the one that I would start with would probably be picking up off the Eddie Maguire theme and that's the AFL because we we spoke about it briefly in the first half of the show the AFL were just left high and dry by the way the NRL outmaneuvered them outplanned them outthought them outworked them um, outvisioned them if you like outsaw the AFL and what they wanted to do it really was Um, a disaster of a year is probably the best way to put it for the AFL because they didn't have their protocols in place. They didn't know what they were doing. They were basically leveraging off the NRL, letting the NRL do the work and then using that template and then just adjusting it to fit with their own model because the AFL, they were in a mad rush when the Victorian outbreak occurred to try and get out of town. And remember, the Melbourne Storm had beaten them by about three days. The Melbourne Storm were already on the Sunshine Coast by the time there were warnings going in place and all that sort of thing. So the AFL, I think, can really consider themselves to have had an ugly year and then they decided to set the hubs up in Queensland and that was their decision, of course, because WA was just an absolute disaster as far as trying to get in and out for hubs and players and squads. And and then all, of course... (laughs) <laughs> to top it all off, they had this grand idea, we'll take the grand final to Brisbane or to Adelaide because Port Adelaide and Brisbane, one of them is going to make the grand final and we're going to make an absolute killing on it. We'll put our money on the Brisbane Lions, which was better than Port because Port didn't make it. Only problem was the Brisbane Lions didn't make it either. So the grand final to set all sorts of records and um, tumble into NRL territory and really take them to the cleaners ended up being Geelong and Richmond, which, well, that's not exactly going to bring a whole lot of Queensland supporters into the game when you've got two Victorian sides. Yeah, it was an interesting decision to move them all up to Queensland. I mean, I know that... uh you know, a lot of other states sort of closed their borders, but it, it was interesting to that they didn't try to move them to, to to states such as Western Australia or to or to South Australia, or even down to Tasmania. But I know the relationship that they've got the with the Tassies at the moment. The AFL is very fragile um, as uh, conversations about uh, trying to get out to um, you know, let's say 
um, <laughs> that new team that they're trying to put together down there. Um, but yeah, a very disappointing year, um, I think, from uh, from the AFL in terms of the way they reacted to, to COVID. As we mentioned uh, previously, it was a it was a, a reactive more than a proactive uh, model that they took this year. I mean, they got by off the success of the year that uh, the years that they've had previously, but no doubt have they taken a hit, um, a big hit this year um, through let's, let's say some fault of their own. Um, speaking of faults of their own, though, one of the organisations that I really want to take aim at this year is Australian Boxing. Now, Australian <laughs> Boxing, Keith, to, to, to put it to put it nicely, is rubbish. That's me putting it nicely. It lacks charisma. There's, it lacks star power, and it's now become more of a comedy than it has an actual sport. And this was highlighted for me for the most recent, and I'm going to put this very much in inverted commas, and this is what it should have actually been been called, inverted commas, super fight that happened only a week ago. Now, the super fight special, as you all would have known if you saw it, was the fight between former rugby league player, New South Wales captain and Australian player Paul Gallen, who's turned uh, semi-professional professional, slash professional boxer, against former UFC powerhouse Mark Hunt, Super Samoa. Now, their fight, which happened, was so bad that, that, that this is pretty much the billing of, of Australian boxing is really sad. It's really quite sad. I mean, and it wasn't just the first case of former rugby league players coming out of retirement and taking their time up in boxing. It happened earlier this year when Justin Hodges got in a ring, uh, you know, and fought some nobody and, and beat the hell out of him. Actually, that was last year. So then they had guys like Darcy Lussett come in and fight. Uh, and, it, and it's just like, where are the actual grounds to give Australian boxers, actual professional boxers, the opportunity to fight people. And it's just not there. They failed to done it. And they really do it, I should say. It really accentuated itself when Tim Zhu fought his most recent fight after the fight against Paul Gallen and Mark Hunt. And he absolutely obliterated his opponent. Now, Tim Zhu is the, let's say, the shining light of Australian boxing right now. You know, mm-hmm. he, he he's beaten all comers. He... He knocked off Jeff Horn really easy. Um, you know, he's had some pretty similar fights where he's been too good. He absolutely annihilated Bowen Morgan within 30 seconds. Of the, 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 the Kiwi fighter who had come across had been undefeated. But who's he fighting? Tim Zhu was so much, so far better than these guys that he, they couldn't even sustain himself for for more than one round, which is embarrassing because Tim Zhu now has a title fight. He's in line for a title fight. But he can't... How is he ever going to make that jump from... This is the problem that Jeff Horn had. Jeff Horn beat Manny Pacquiao. Some some would say controversially. It was a little controversial, but he won regardless on home soil at Suncourt Stadium. A great fight against Manny Pacquiao. He then went over to America and he got his title shot against Terence Crawford and he got absolutely obliterated. Now, Terence Crawford is very good. I'm probably one of the best of all time. But there's other competitive fighters out there across the globe who are of a similar standard to guys like Jeff Horn and now Tim Zhu. 
And Tim just doesn't have those opportunities to fight these kind of guys. And then when he has to make that jump, it just falls into oblivion. And that is on Australian boxing, not being able to set up a decent fight for him, but also promoting this rubbish, ex-retired athletes against each other. Mark Hunt threw punches for about two rounds and then stood in the middle of the ring, hunched over, tired, just hugging Paul Gallant. And that's all it was. It was disgraceful. The fact that people paid to watch that. And that was one of, I was one of those people. I was one of those people. I paid to watch that. It was embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And it's not, it's not, it, it's, I paid to watch a boxing match, not a circus. I think that's probably probably all that needs to be said. You've absolutely let rip and you hit pretty much everything on the head. But something that is also a bit of a circus, I have to say, and I've been absolutely amazed by what's happened over the last couple of months in particular, just the way that the place has fallen apart. You talk about Australian boxing falling apart. What about something that's also very close to your heart in the A-League? What about the way the Newcastle Jets have just fallen off a cliff? I mean, they've, they've got, as far as I'm aware, as of the time of recording, they don't have an owner, they don't have a coach. What, what do they have as far as outlook at the moment? Even the Central Coast Mariners, who have forever been the pauper of the A-League, have a brighter outlook into the future than the Newcastle Jets, because at least they've got an owner who's sticking around. The Newcastle Jets are in a, are in a landslide, and... If, to be honest with you, they're on the, they're on their own. They're on their own. The A League, I think, to its credit, knows how to cut its losses. And where something with the NRL has failed to do in recent times and spent millions of dollars trying to bail out clubs, you know, getting in, you know, and trying to keep them alive to keep the competition afloat. There's no way that the the A League will will let will will fund the Jets to stay alive. Now, recent talks is is that they there is they are in talks with a with a consortium to take them over, but it's very very let's say early stages at the moment. I mean, the Central Coast Mariners I've already mentioned in every A League preview that we ever do or ra- or, or roundup that they're they're just as woeful organisation as the Jets. But you know they're 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 F three M1, F3 Derby rivals are not doing much better. And it stems from, I think, a, a, you know, a lack of success of that, of that grand final. And, and funnily enough, it actually goes back to, you know, video technology getting it wrong and giving Melbourne, opportun- Melbourne Victory opportunity to win that grand final that was Newcastle's to take. They didn't take it. And since then, they've just lost all their players. And that, I think that's probably been, I think, uh, they've been a victim of their own success in a way where, they just couldn't afford to keep the players around. They had that one year where they managed to get people on a decent contract and all of a sudden all those players went, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're, we're way better than this. We need, to get paid. we need to get paid now. And the Jets didn't have the backing to do that. And then they've just gone into purgatory essentially. And, I mean, I don't know what sort of stands, you know, for them now. I mean, I've always rated the Newcastle fan base, whether that be the, uh, for the Rugby League or for the, or for the A-League. They always turn out when you know when they're doing bad or, or, or poor, bad or good. Um, but it's getting to a stage now for the Jets where even Newcastle fans are struggling to go. Okay, I don't know if I can be asked to pay for a ticket to go see these guys play. 
And I think that's where you get to a point where the club has to consider exactly what it wants to be in the A-League and exactly what it wants to accomplish in the competition, whether they even want to be in the competition, which was how the players looked at least uh, on your next one during the season, uh, even if they've been a powerhouse in the past. Yeah, exactly right. And that that powerhouse is the Brisbane Broncos. Uh, We mentioned, uh, you know, Anthony Seabold, any individuals who failed this year, but them themselves failed this year as well. Uh, right from the top uh, uh, of the food chain uh, has this team just, and this club just not performed at like any professional level whatsoever. I mean, you, you, it all comes back to that 2018-2019 transition where they brought Anthony Seabold along. He was given the poison chalice, as you mentioned, going in and, trying to rebuild a, a Wayne Bennett uh, demolition job like Nathan Brown had to do at Newcastle. Seabold was sent in to fix up the the mess at Brisbane, which it wasn't really in too much of a mess because they were a powerhouse club. They had, obviously, a $50 million turnover, as Ben Eichenden always likes to harp on about um, on NRL 360. But this team, this club this year, just could not fire on all cylinders and and it was all down to pathetic pop politics. Old boy rugby. You know what it reminded me of, Keith? It reminded me of that bitter old feud between Wests and Balmain and that rubbish in-house bickering about uh, anything that's not related to the team's success on the field. Well, I think it's even worse than the West Balmain feud because at least an element of the West Balmain side of things is how you can make the club better rather than who should be in charge and I don't like you, therefore I want to be in charge. No, I don't like you, therefore I want to be in charge. And No, I hate you more. No, I hate you more, as opposed to the Balmain West side of things, which is at least contrasting ideas about how to make the place better, how to be more successful and being able to take that next step forward. I just, just don't understand, like, I mean, how it could have gone so horribly wrong for them. Like, they had the team. Yes, okay, they did have some some weaknesses, but it wasn't a it wasn't a last-place team on paper. It wasn't. No. Uh, that belonged solely to the Bulldogs, <laughs> you know? Like, it, you know, as you mentioned. But just the way that they played was just was purely terrible, and it stemmed off the back of what was happening at the top. And, you know, you had the guys like Gordon Tallis and Ben Eichening go on and whinge about Anthony Seabold, but Anthony Seabold hates every... And then you had guys like Kevy Walters in the background who really wanted the job, as we know he's got it now. Um, you know, you know, you had his mates and stuff who were like, oh, it should have been Kevy that got the job. And, you know, and then Seabold himself had that that hatred for Wayne Bennett after the, how he, after the sort of bigger, bitter feud they had between each other at uh, the start of, at the end of 2018 when they switched roles uh, in that absolute farce of a coaching saga. And now you've got this in Brisbane where they've just, you know, they've they've fallen in a heap, which is just, uh, which is just shocking to see. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a few of us down here uh, in, in New South Wales who bleed blue uh, who are, have got a bit of a Cheshire grin to see the almighty Brisbane Broncos not performing at their at their best uh, and not looking like they're going to come out of it anytime soon. But it just, you know, anyone who took that job that Seabold took uh, was always destined to fail. And 
and I, until they get that in-house politics fixed, it's, and they get, you know, and there's one side that rules the roost, they're not going anywhere. No, they're not going anywhere. But one team that is going somewhere down at the moment is the Toronto Wolfpack. And I think it's been fairly well established on both the bench and on splinters that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship (laughs) with the Wolfpack, or it should be termed more accurately hate-hate because of the way they are run. And it didn't surprise me at all when Super League had to shut down because of the pandemic. You had to step up and figure out what was going to happen next. And all the clubs had their ideas. But because the Wolfpack have spent so much money trying to put a team on the park, they then had to bail on the English Super League because it was going to cost their owner way too much money. And he put the money into the wrong areas and he overspent and it was always going to collapse when he took over. And now the Toronto Wolfpack have been told by the Super League, well, no, you didn't complete the season. You forfeited every game. Therefore, you lost and you're going down. And now the Super League, for some reason, is being criticised for not having the foresight to develop the game into the future when the Wolfpack basically spent NRL money trying to put together what was effectively not even a Super League team but a championship team to try and compete um, in the top English competition. And the place was just running to the ground. And uh, the only thing that surprised me was that the Wolfpack took this long to fall over. And poor old Eric Perez, who started the Wolfpack, who is now the push, the driving force behind the new Ottawa Aces, which was going to enter the English competition in League One next year. But now that's going to be pushed back to 2022 because of the pandemic. He's trying to establish a football club in Ottawa. And it'll be interesting to see whether that succeeds under his leadership, because once he was punted from the Wolfpack, it became just your typical sporting franchise. And there was no there was no real foresight to be had as far as a real vision went. Interesting, though, obviously you had a, a personal view at that. But from an outside point of view, you knew it was always going to go downhill when they offered Sonny Bill an extraordinary amount of money for two years of work. I think it was $10 million for two years. It was a $10 million. I wanted to say $10 million, but I wasn't sure if it was $10 million. They offer, I don't know what the salary cap looks like in, in the Super League, but $5 million of your cap year on year, imagine if they gave if, if that happened in the NRL. <laughs> that's just that's half your cap gone. Pure stupidity. It is the stupidest signing in history. That's their biggest failure. That's where it went wrong, where they went, oh, as you mentioned, they spent it in the wrong areas. That was one of those areas that was the money went into the wrong spot. Speaking of money that's been put into the wrong spot, and this has been put into the wrong spot for years, Rugby Australia is the next oh. one on our list. And my God, do they have a bad year. I mean, they've been in they've been in skyfall, not freefall, skyfall, spacefall. They've been falling from the stratosphere for the last four or five years, really. I mean, um, you know, it's... And it, and it really has come to fruition this year how embarrassingly bad Australian rugby has gotten to. You know, it, it really all stemmed from the Israel Folau saga, um, which, you know, wrapped up late last year or this time last year or early this year, you know, that they lost that battle with Israel Folau. And we're not getting into, into that debate. But I think, you know, really it's, you know, pick your poison on who you think was in the, was in the wrong. Um, needless to say, I still think Israel Folau um, bled Australian rugby dry. Uh, and, and it was just downhill 
from there. They sacked Raylene Castle in April. The appoint- her appointment in the first place was just astonishing, considering the, sh- the shit show that went on at Canterbury while she was in charge there. Um, and then getting themselves this... And I know COVID didn't play much of an effect into this, but this horrible local Australian competition, uh, which was just boring as hell, where, you know, there was about five teams fighting each other. They begged the Western Force to come back, hilariously as well. Let's not forget that. After they kicked them out, they kicked them out of the of the, of the Super League, of the, of, sorry, the Super Rugby season, mm. and then brought them back. when they should have kicked out the Melbourne, Melbourne um, Rebels because they were rubbish. They bought the Western Force back, um, and we still ended up having a, a boring season where the Brumbies, who were by far the best team, ended up winning. I mean, and then contrast that to now, where they've had a you know what looks like to be on the up, uh, an Australian Wallabies team after there's some decent performances against the All Blacks in the in the Bledisloe and in the in the Rugby Championship, but then it was marked with poor draws to Argentina. And, you know, they had three draws in, in a calendar year, which is, I don't think ever happened before. Uh, and it just showed, uh, and the quality that was in this Australian team, it just showed the lack of investment Rugby Australia has put into the grassroots game uh, on, on Australian soil. Um, you know, it's really missed a trick. Once again, the, suit, the shoot shield had a, another impressive year despite COVID. Um, I know Mirzi and, and the team have had great fun calling those games this year on Triple H and and I know they'll have more fun calling them in the future, that's for sure. But the lack of, let's say, what's the word I'm looking for? Integration from Rugby Australia into these local competitions has just been astounding and just shows at the top level how poor they are because they've just got no legs to stand on. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summation, not having any legs to stand on because they've just run themselves into the ground, just like an organisation that is much closer to us on a week-in, week-out level, and we've mentioned it more than once or twice this year, has been the New South Wales Rugby League. Now, I've had some staffing changes. We're not going to mention exactly who is going in and out because we don't want to give them the satisfaction of hearing their name on air. But they lurched from one disaster to another, whether it was their media management or not being able to figure out what they were doing with the competition. Now, granted, not all of that can be put down to their mismanagement because of the way the pandemic um, came through. The New South Wales Cup, the Canterbury Cup competition, was always going to be in a real spot of bother because you had the Warriors and they couldn't play part-time based in Australia and you weren't getting into New Zealand and all that sort of thing. That was never going to work very well. But what they ended up doing with the President's Cup at the end of the year, I, I thought was was pretty embarrassing for the New South Wales Rugby League not to be able to put that together properly because they knew what was coming. They knew they were going to have some clubs in difficult positions and you had the farcical situation towards the end of the year where they were putting out a joint statement with all the other sports declaring that, oh yeah, we're we're not going to go region to region, travel and all that sort of thing. And yet you had Sydney teams going to Orange and Dubbo and Mudgee and Maitland week in, week out. And once again, the New South Wales Rugby League I don't know where they go from here, and I really hope that the staffing changes mean that they can get themselves back on track as far as operating those second-tier competitions, even in their own mind, because their premier competition is reserve grade, or the Canterbury Cup competition. 
as as far as their top competition goes but their commitment to their second and third tier senior football I think has been deplorable and it really crescendoed this year yeah it's been a a really disappointing year for for at a state level for for rugby league and obviously we've been in the thick of that this year and and the way that uh, it's kind of crumbled underneath itself I think we're really going to see the extent of the damage that's been done uh this year um uh, when it when it resumes, hopefully next year, um, you know, fingers crossed that we're we're out there watching uh, New South Wales Rugby League uh, matches again in 2021. Um, but yeah, poor organisational skills uh, 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 across New South Wales Rugby League, and they were, to be honest with you, they weren't the only ones as we've mentioned uh, that uh, weren't be doing, uh, haven't been doing too great in 2021. Another one that my my final pick as well uh, belongs to the MLB, Major League Baseball. And the way that they handled the playing payer dispute, um, sorry, the pay dispute for the players, um, they've just had this back and forth between the big rigs at the MLB and and, and the players themselves in, in trying to organise a, a conversation around how much they should get paid during this year when fans can't attend the game. They've literally had no ability to come to an agreement about where that's what that sum should be and what percentage should be taken away and whether you think one side is right or what the other side is right is a different story altogether but the only side that is right is that people who are paid a lot of money to play sport arguing about money against those who have lost their jobs is always a bad look Absolutely, and and this is where um, a lot of the ice hockey analysts in the United States and Canada got it absolutely right when they said the NHL couldn't afford to have a fight over their next collective bargaining agreement, which is exactly what the baseballers did, because the argument was basically going to be between billionaires and millionaires over who was going to get more of the the almost trillion, uh, not trillion, but multi-billion dollar pie that is Major League Baseball. And when you've got people losing their jobs, losing their homes, losing their well-being, losing their lives, the idea that you should be bickering over who's going to get a bigger cut of a $100 billion contract is it's just embarrassing to think about for some of these clubs and the players, the owners, neither of them really cover themselves in glory and for that to be the takeout of the year for baseball when basketball managed to get their act together and hockey got their act together and the NFL even managed to figure things out, for them to be the only American sport not to be able to get things sorted out, I think was a really bad look for them and I just wonder whether... Americans will turn back to baseball or whether there's going to be a little bit of a downturn now because we've seen it before. When you have um, labour disputes, then you will always get a downturn in the sport and hockey knows that better than any sport in the United States. But now that they've been arguing over a lot of money during a pandemic when everybody else is losing their jobs and lives... I, I think it's going to end up being a pretty bad look for baseball to try and come back from that. Well, look, it's one of the fails of the year alongside those uh, other 16 uh, individuals and collectors that we've mentioned for uh, 2020. It's fortunately, though, as much as uh, Keith and I would love to rant to you all night's uh, uh, sporting friends, unfortunately, time is the enemy once again. And we are going to have to 
call time on the fails for the year for 2020. Keith, it's been a pleasure once again uh, speaking with you uh, on some of the biggest disappointments of, of, of the year. Uh, I'm sure there was many more, but hopefully next year there'll be a few less. Well, you'd certainly hope there'd be a few less, although there could very well be more because hopefully we'll get more sport back next year. So it really is a case of watch this space. <laughs> exactly right. But ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned to more splinters. I'm sh- next week we're going to have the best of the year, and I'm sure that there's been a few of those moments as well. Until next time, my name is Tom Rizzuto for Keith Dupolsky. Stay sharp and play pretty. Good night. <laughs>